What is this is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 208 of the Mandolins of Beer podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. It's also brought to you in part by Acoustic Disc. Acoustic Disc is the home of David Grisman's incredible catalog of recordings where he keeps putting out such amazing releases. Last year was great. I just spent, I actually spent the last few weeks kind of going through a bunch of the releases that they put out in 2023. And such, such cool stuff. And it's also the home of his podcast with Danny Barnes, Acoustic Encounters. Happy New Year, everybody. Holy cow, 2024. I have a list of things that I want to accomplish this year. And looking at the the dry board, one of them is trying to be more organized. Uh, and another one is really trying to uh, build community back on my Patreon. Uh, you know, Patreon 2023 was like such a crazy year and I really want to focus on some some more playing aspects this year, and um, I got a couple great ideas. Um, one of them is I'm going to, again, try to start posting examples, starting today, of Andrew Collins, for example. His 10 minutes a day idea is a really, really cool exercise he talks about, and if it doesn't make sense to you, I'm going to do a quick little video and share it on the Patreon, so that way you are going to be able to see. Now, a lot of the 10 minutes, the problem became I was doing that every episode and and sometimes a lot of them are similar. So it's tough to, uh, you know, keep posting the same thing kind of over and over again. But uh, that is one of the things. Another one of them is I have completed, um, this has been a labor of love here this year. I've been working on transcribing. I've been working on working with music software and I've come up you know, I talk about the 10 minutes a day idea all the time with my favorite players, and I really do believe you can become better. And one of the things I did is I went through and learned a bunch of solos, broke them down into licks. And what you can do is, uh, if you it's 100 licks in this book. I'm already working on number two. I'll have number one up there very soon, and that'll have audio examples. Uh, and basically, you take a solo, I, I find what I would think would be a manageable part to learn, and work on in 10 minutes a day, usually it's one bar or two bars, and you just started that, and I have a recording at 50% of it, so you can get that lick under your fingers, and this is kind of inspired by a lot of a lot of things, Jake Eddy being one of them, where he doesn't learn scales, he learns licks and catalogs them, and the cool part about this is, you know, if a solo's in G, and you're learning this part over G, you can use this lick anywhere on a song in G, you know, almost anywhere, I should say. And then at the end of however many days, like if the song or the solo has 14 licks, within two weeks, you can have a solo in the style of some of your favorite players out there. And I believe none of these solos have been transcribed yet either. I mean, so many things are out there on the internet. I just went through some of my favorite and some obscure stuff. So it'll have links to the solos, slowed down the tabs, um, and that'll be different tiers. I'm still trying to figure that out. That will be up in the next few weeks on my Patreon. Uh, and also, if you just want to get a copy of that, I'm sure we can work that out as well. But I really want to try to get the Patreon uh, back up and running a little bit better, including doing an album of the month where we get together and do a Zoom discussion and just talk about some of our favorite albums. So I'm going to take a few albums that I thought would be cool to talk about, and I'll put them on Facebook and Instagram. And if you'd like to do it, the very first one, it'll just be open to anyone who wants to join instead of joining the Patreon and then see if it's worth it. But again, get that back and working. And, and, and the support from the Patreon, too, by the way, just really helps us podcast go a long way. Um, you know, I have the advertisers who I'm so grateful to have as well. But, uh, you know, every little bit helps keep this going and, and you know, trying to uh, do some more meaningful shows 
going for uh, quality over quantity, and that'll help me focus a little bit on that too. So if you have a couple dollars to uh, to to spend each week, you can. Join the Patreon, and also I'll put a donation link on the front page of my website, too, if you don't want to join Patreon, but you want to donate. I've had a few people reach out and do that as well. Again, it all adds up. I really appreciate it. It's out there for free, too. If you're just enjoying it, just spread the word, and that would be great also. King of my incredible advertisers. Start with Peghead Nation. Said it once, I'll say it again. Peghead Nation has got one of the finest lineups of mandolin instructors you're going to find out there. They also have guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass, too. So you can learn bluegrass, old time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in Roots Music. Sharon Gilchrist, Joe K. Walsh, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Fibus, Chad Manning, Ian Curry, from beginner to advanced, Shoro to jazz, Gypsy Jazz, the newest with Aaron. Uh, it's all great stuff. The best part, of course, is you can get any of Peghead Nation's video courses now and get your first month for free. Just go to PegheadNation.com and use the promo code MANDOLINBEER, all one word, at checkout. Northfield Mandolins, let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at NorthfieldMandolins.com and download their app at MandoSummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and workshops. String Joy, I am now an officially endorsed String Joy artist. I uh, I love these strings. I had to uh, wait until the first of the year here to announce that. Um, I, I, I was endorsed by another brand, and then that, that ran out. And um, I've got to be honest with you. These String Joy strings blew my mind the very first time I put them on my mandolin. I never liked coated strings. These coated strings don't feel like any coated strings I've ever felt. They felt like they're, they're, they're already broken in. They don't have that weird slickness or... God, that weird extra bright sound but even the uh i've tried just the regular as well and and not the coated i love them too but i'm so proud to be a string joy in dorsey and to have them supporting the podcast and you can try them out and get yourself 10 percent off by using the code mandolin beer all one word at checkout speaking of tone another great way you can change your tone is with your pick tone slabs that's right, Tone Slabs. They, I've been using mine since I've got mine. I've got my signature model. Uh, I have to get them the picture in my bio to put that on their website, but I also have some to sell as well, and I'll be putting those on my website. I love it. You can customize them. Mine have my logo and signature on them, and then they have uh, one rounded edge and two regular kind of triangle-shaped edges, um, so you can use one for more tremolo sort of stuff. I love it. You can get yours at toneslabs.com today. And Elderly Instruments. Elderly Instruments is your trusted source for new, used, and vintage fretted and stringed instruments. For the experience of the beginner player, their vast selection of mandolins, guitars, banjos, ukuleles, and did I say mandolins? Includes all of the accessories and books to go with them. All instruments are inspected and set up for easy playability, and their down-to-earth and knowledgeable staff are there to help. Now, in their 51st year, their family-owned, operated, award-winning, the ship worldwide, and you can visit them anytime at elderly.com. All right, just wanted to get out a few things for the new year there. Super excited for 2024. As always, thank you so much for listening. Uh, this episode with Andrew Collins is so much fun. Some great, great stories. Uh, a, a wild hotel room story. And uh, yeah, go out and get their new album, The Rule of Three. Again, I always recommend going out and supporting your favorite mandolin artist. I'll have links below. Cheers, everybody.
All right, man, it is my pleasure to welcome back once again to the podcast, Andrew Collins. Andrew, how's it going, buddy? Fantastic, Daniel. It's great to great to be chatting again, man. Yeah, same here. Um, it's it's always a pleasure, and it's funny because we've we've had to reschedule this a couple times, um, and and due to illness, and and we were just talking about um, some of the things, like especially in the uh, the last few years of touring, that this it's it's become like a common theme, and we've all learned how to really pivot <laughs> as far as like, uh oh, um, somebody can't make it last minute. Yeah, yeah, we've everyone's experienced a lot of that. <laughs> but you were talking about being at a festival, and I, I think that's one of the cool things about the style of music is you, you you get ready to do a festival, and at the pretty much the very last moment, a member of the trio can't make it. Yeah. Well, okay. Like first, let me just give a little background with with the trio. Like it's always been a situation where there's tons of improvisation, but there are lots of parts woven into it and, and these like intricate arrangements. And it's really tough gig to just like step in and play all this material. And I've always liked knowing and like working an arrangement and getting it tighter and evolving it. But um, so fast forwarding to the first festival that we had post COVID and, and at this point, the third member of the trio, Mike Mezzatesta, had uh, hung up his touring shoes. He decided he didn't want to tour anymore. So um, this was going to be the first festival that we had with a sub at all. And sure enough, he wasn't able to make it. It was Mark Roy, uh, the guy I did a duo album with years ago, who sadly passed last summer. Oh, suddenly. sorry to hear uh, that. Really brutal. But yeah, it's really... I wasn't even thinking about that when we were in the Bitsellas. Anyhow, he wasn't able to make it very last minute. Like we arrived at the festival and found out that he wasn't going to be able to come and had to cancel. And so it's just two of us there. And, you know, we just had to go. We just had to, you know, make the show go on. And so we got a couple guests to sit in like a guest for each set to sit in for like half tunes and just gave them like the easiest arrangement stuff that we could throw together. <laughs> Maybe not easy tunes, but like stuff that they could just learn chords and take solos and just like, fly by the seat of their pants. And then we did some other stuff as a duo instead of trio, which meant we had to like kind of just make do with what we had. And it was the first taste of everything's okay. And, and even if things weren't how I like to imagine them, they should be. And my preconceived notion, they were great and really exciting. And, you know, I got to teach it about, like I've taught at many camps over the years. And interestingly, uh, I've taught at several with Grant Gordy and, and I'd always throw like one of my tunes at Grant that required, you know, like some ability to follow un, unconventional chord changes and like improvise freely. And, and uh, so I'd already had a little experience with him and we just finished our first tour, like full out tour with a sub with Grant. And it was this real, it's really changed how I feel about performing the music, like their structure and everything, but allowing things to just happen and evolve through uh, spontaneity. And, you know, like he had a ton of stuff to learn and he really did put a ton of work into it. And there, 
I just had like he wasn't going to be able to like I wasn't going to micromanage him into playing parts that I'd worked on over years with other people (laughs) (laughs) and and watching the music evolve and freeing me up to also extend so like just like allow things to happen and and have James and myself the bass player and myself be able to also just let go and let things happen and it was really uh, a great experience and of course like that tour with Grant was a phenomenal success and and uh really great experience and he actually just had a child, so he was going to, supposed to go on the road with us in February. But after he knew that he and his wife were having a baby, um, he bowed out of that tour, like with lots of notice. And we have Ross Martin joining us for the next tour, who I've also taught at a few camps with over the years. So we know each other, but haven't like really played together. So this will be a really fun experience. Two great players to uh to have fill in though, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's just like perfect. yeah, top top shelf for sure. And, and not to say that the now the person who is kind of in the trio regularly for shorter runs and local stuff, his name's Adam Shire, and he's also one of those uh, you know at the same caliber. He just doesn't want to be touring for long durations because he's this phenomenal brewmaster. He runs a brewery, boutique brewery that we can get to later if you want to ask about his beer. <laughs> Award-winning brewmaster. Oh well, I mean, we can. We're, we're talking about him right now. Let's. We could talk about the beer here real quick. Yeah. Wh- where Where's yeah. this brewery at? Well, so he started out he's actually the first person whose beer like after a gig that i did with him years ago i dropped him off at his place and he offered me a beer and it's the first time i discovered that someone who does homebrew can actually make really great beer and is like (laughs) one of my entrees into real like fancy high shelf uh ipa and um and so he's gone on since to run this brewery called silversmith breweries and uh um he's yeah like he let me see i asked him actually to send me some of the awards that he's won in the last couple years he won like for his oatmeal stout this is his own recipe he won silver at the canadian brewing awards he won gold at the 22 canada beer cup for his english pale ale and he won bronze for his New England IPA and another Ontario Blue, uh, Brewing Award. So he's he's uh, very accom- as accomplished at that as he is at the guitar and mandolin and banjo, for that matter. <laughs> oh, man. Does he have multiple breweries or is it just kind of one brewery or is he just? It's not his own brewery. He's just been running this brewery, which was bought out by another company called Silversmith Brewery brewing <laughs> and they they brew for a few different breweries not like uh you know brew houses um yeah and i'm not a beer master so it just felt really good to have something to say about beer on this podcast <laughs> <laughs> well man well that's awesome and now uh, speaking of awesome the the new album the rule of three um so excited when you sent me a copy of this to uh, listen to it before it came out it's just incredible and i've listened to it a bunch and uh just another another killer album buddy congratulations 
Thanks. This one, you know, this this does feature the original trio, like myself, James Magalini, and Mike Mezzatesta. We were actually supposed to record it in April of 2020, but uh, as you know, everything got blown up at that time. So we ended up getting to record it in September of 2020, but the trio we just stopped touring over the pandemic. Like we tried to rebook a tour to the UK and then that got canceled again. And, and a couple shows that we had booked in the States got rebooked and then canceled. So it just reached a point where we just weren't doing anything. So that it kind of sat on the shelf languishing for almost three years, actually literally three years. And we finally, you know, we had CD release uh, shows, all booked and i was like oh i guess i gotta get this album done <laughs> and it really um so it's kind of like going back in a time capsule a bit as this was being mixed and and you know totally came to life my good good friend and recording mentor and producing mentor um david Travers smith uh, this is the first trio album and really the first album in like 15 years that I didn't do, that I didn't record, mix. And and uh, I and part of the design for it was to get my friend David, who's a monster producer and engineer, um, to just put out... I didn't want to put out another trio album that just sounded like another trio album. I want something that was going to be have some surprises and, and just pull us into something fresh that if I did it, it would just, it would likely sound a lot like what I do. So I really wanted an outside voice helping shape it. And he brought it to life and uh, yeah, I'm quite excited about it. Was he the one that worked on your first recording? He recorded little widgets. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, it was over the, the production of that album that I became really good friends with him. So this is almost 20 years ago and uh, I've been recording and producing for about 15, 16 years now. And he was a huge mentor for me and still I aspire. Everything I do is an aspiration of achieving his quality and his sounds. And he, he knows acoustic music so well and, um, but aside from the fact that we're like super close friends, my studio when I when I had like a separate studio for about nine years was down the hall from his studio where we always are sharing gear and um, drinking coffee and planning things together. So it's uh yeah, he's he's great. What about is producing style? Because you also, I mean, the stuff that you've done yourself sounds phenomenal and and obviously this record sounds phenomenal you know but what do you what do you think it is the difference between uh is it the way he sets things up the way he approaches things that that you uh, try to achieve you know what are you working towards that you think he yeah gets? so 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 when i first was getting into recording and, and like recording as an artist not as an engineer you know there were just no engineers that i knew locally that were getting the sounds and the like the tone of all the albums that i was listening to and a close friend of mine uh did an album 
Her name's Jenny Whiteley. It was produced by Steve Dawson. I don't know if you know him, but but engineered by David Trevor. Oh no, actually, I think this one David produced as well. And it and it was uh, called um, uh, Hope Town is the name of the album. And he he also produced the Waylon Jennings first few albums and, and like a ton of artists. And it was the, I, like as soon as I heard this recording, I was like, oh here's a Canadian guy and happens to live in Toronto as well, who really is like a master at, at getting acoustic instruments to sound three dimensional and like getting all the dark stuff with all the high end detail. Like it, everything always sounded thin to me, but not with him. And, and um, so everything about his approach is, is, you know, right from his miking techniques and and discovering like really what microphones are are uh, you know some of the classic microphones that people use and and like discovering like the qualities of vintage microphones and stuff because I've got a little bit of a collection. He's got a beautiful mic collection as well and and miking techniques that like without getting too technical, really like I've. I've seen so many engineers who dogmatically, they see a guitar and they say, oh, this is my guitar mic and this is where I put microphones on guitar. And they have this like, which may work, but David's approach to everything is explorative. So you're not getting a mic, you're not getting like mic placement really influences the tone that you get it's like eqing the instrument but with simple mic placement to begin with and instead of just like plopping microphones down in a spot um when you're setting your mic placements if you solo the microphone that you're moving and you move it around to find and to like actually eq the instrument you're already starting out with the best possible tone and and he just has you know so the approach is always about discovery not just using your own dogma as the this is what i do sort of thing and if you're doing that by road i think it can you're always relying on your ears to um to get the sounds that you want and and every step of his approach is like that which and he's got a ton of experience, so he can move super quickly at the same time. So that those are things that I've patterned myself after. But mainly, the getting those tones are something that I've really, really patterned myself after. Yeah, that's so smart. I mean, every every instrument has a different frequency characteristic. Totally. No matter what brand it is, you couldn't just you know you can't just throw a a, a mic on a twelfth fret of every single guitar. And it, I mean, I guess technically you could, it's a safe way to do it, but what about all the frequencies? <laughs> and, it, and yeah. And if Sam Bush is playing the same mandolin as Chris Thiele, the mandolins are going to sound totally different and something might capture, you know, with someone with a softer touch like Thiele, um, you might want something that accentuates high end stuff. Whereas someone who's, slamming the mandolin more and has lots of brightness to his tone and attack you might want something that mitigates i'm not saying you do but these are like all considerations that why have why start with i know how this is going to work rather than how can i make this sound as good as possible with every step of the way yeah yeah and that's what you're paying them for when you go into the studio you know what i mean you you should be anyway you should be i don't want to go into the place and just be like you know 
a, a cutout of what happened the afternoon before me or whatever. I want the time taken to make me sound as good as I can. I need all the help I can get. <laughs> yeah. And, and w- so with, with this album, my, my mandate to him was um, like, especially with the mixing side, even if in the recording side, but I'd, I'd say in the like recording process, he helped us get our better performances. He wasn't like micro, he wasn't getting into the arrangements as much as helping us just being a, an extra set of ears and making suggestions for us to like, particularly with like Claire de Lune, for example, the classical piece. really was helping us with getting the phrasing to breathe and moving away from, you know, just trying to keep good time, but like have it breathe and this sort of thing. But with, I wanted him to have full license to be as playful as he wanted with the mixing. So if he wanted to, and like, rather than what my approach normally is, and there, there's, exception within the trio albums as well where i'm adding in some etheric effects in the background and textures but i really want him to feel free to like mess with the music if he heard something to follow his ear and go for it and there are a few that he's like uh if you don't like it i can rein it in and my my response was always i love it you can take it further if you want and and um you know that i think was also very freeing for him Cause he was never like experimenting with stuff and getting feedback from me. That's like, Oh, that's too much. It was always like, I love it because he's super tasteful as well. Yeah. How do you get to, to Carnegie hall? I think is the first track that, that has that sort of uh, like the delay, I believe is what caught my ear on that where I was like, Oh wow. Cool. Yeah, at the very beginning and there's some big surprises in that one that's the first like easter egg that's how i kind of see them as like these easter eggs where you're not expecting something to happen and that's how i often arrange my music like i like there to be surprises that you don't see coming but after they happen it's like oh that was like a lot like a punchline to a joke where the setup made it an event that you weren't expecting yeah, I, I, that's that's a great example. There's uh, so much about your that reminds me of what I love about your playing, too, is because I think we have very similar influences and spend a lot of times. I mean, that's kind of ridiculous saying that to another mandolin player. <laughs> you know what I mean? But like yeah. but like I think like Matt Flinner, John Reichman, like Absolutely. I hear yeah. a lot of both of their influence in, in, in some of your tunes. And, and I mean that in the best way possible. And to me, it's just very exciting. I would say I would say Matt Flinner 
uh, of a singular person, like Anger and Marshall in how I approached my early years and exploration of new acoustic music and obviously Grisman. Um, but Matt Flinner, that album of you from here, uh, like just changed it, it, it probably influenced my composing more than anyone else that and that particular album especially for sure such a classic jethro burns you got the the uh that jethro really burns on here also a big a big influence for you at a point yes and no like i i wouldn't say i spent much time lifting jethro but just like the swing mandolin i wouldn't say any of my like jazz or swing music was influenced by any particular mandolin player it was more like i actually went to jazz school for a little while to get some spoon fed some jazz approach (laughs) and that was kind of like for me a break like the first break from just lifting other players music and more and started me down the path of you know when i'm practicing improvisation or musical things it started to become more explorative and and much more practicing concepts rather than lifting other players stuff Mm -hmm. and and so in my jazz and swing stuff i actually didn't really lift any mandolin players although i love jethro and you know that that tune originated you know sometimes you're playing on your instrument and you play a couple things that's like oh that kind of sounds cool and and it reminded me a little bit of um actually like sam bush i think he wrote a tune for jethro on late as usual um and it kind of reminds me a little bit of like just that first phrase kind of reminded me of that and so i kind of decided I was going to write an homage to Jethro as well <laughs> via, I guess, Sam Bush. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect, man. Uh, yeah. I, I, um, I, I love a couple of these titles too. And um, the, 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 it's a berry, not a berry. I had to ask about that. That's um, a conversation that has come up with the trio many times over the years, like with other people, because um, we were on the road and one of, I think Mike said, yeah, I heard bananas are berries. And we're like, no, nah, that's crazy. And we looked it up and sure enough, bananas are berries. And we started discovering all these things that we never would have thought are berries. And 
also discovered that technically raspberries and strawberries and and blackberries aren't technically berries. And to me, it was an interesting analogy, like it particularly, I mean, to me, it's an analogy of more political things where nowadays people cannot have uh, a discussion with opposing views. And the it's a berry, not a berry was this cool discovery of we assume we all know what berries are. <laughs> right. And and no and like zucchini is a berry. Uh, cucumbers are berries, eggplants, pumpkins are berries, um, blueberries are berries as well. But you know, strawberries and raspberries are not, right? So in that discovery, it was like this cool example of something that would never upset people and like get their back up so that they can't discover this thing this assumption actually i mean and that's not even true a few people that i've talked about it with actually like do get annoyed by <laughs> like why are you talking about this and and to me it's just like this reminder that you know we most of what we quote unquote know are assumptions that have helped like you know that work but ha actually haven't been put to the test and often we don't know squat about what we think we know. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> How did you then decide that this song would be perfect for that title? Uh, well, I, I kind mainly because it's such, it really is like two pieces, like two totally different pieces that are kind of related, but opposites of each other. Like the first one is kind of like an old time, banjo tune that i play on the man like they're both mandola tunes but they're both like played as an old time tune where i'm just playing the melody and we're evolving the backup and what's happening around it and then it goes into this jig vibe uh slip jig and a jig and and it's really like very uh totally disparate melodies that like when it changes, it totally changes. And it just, we, we're already having this discussion. So the tunes kind of existed before I had the name of like, oh yeah, this would be perfect for that. <laughs> and it gives me an opportunity to talk about it on stage all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Eat up some time to do some tuning. <laughs> That's right, yeah. <laughs> um, how about Fleabag? Well, Fleabag, we came by, honestly, we were teaching at a, uh, at, uh, we're doing an artist in residency in Quad Cities um, area, and it, we're going to be there for a full week, and I, I booked the hotel, and, you know, it was a days in, I didn't think it could be, you know, how bad could it be? <laughs> Although the ratings weren't very good, but it was cheap. <laughs> and we arrived there after 12 hours of driving. We're just so exhausted. We get in the place. And it is like, it, it really is a gross place. And we're like too tired to worry about it. So we all go to bed and I wake up the next morning and my legs were literally covered in flea bites. Oh. And, um, and 
yeah, so we got out of there real quick, but we got, but it inspired the tune. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh. And when I introduce the song, I usually tell people that despite what people believe, being a musician isn't as glamorous as you might imagine. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then one other one, I th- the, the title, I wondered if it told a story, but Shelter in Place. more that one was actually one that um was written long before it was written actually for a demo for the grant proposals to you know we this grant or this album got funding by the canada council for the arts um and this was a demo that i'd written fully in sibelius and when i recorded the demo with just mando cello and mandolins i just laid down the parts with david and it was kind of an experiment where i was like let's just do this you do what you want with it real quick and we'll put it in as a demo and um and james also laid down a bass part but he'd never learned it before like and nor had i i was literally reading the music while recording it and david did some you know added some unexpected sounds to it and it it was like at if if you consider where it's at now like an 11 um it was like at a three for (laughs) for shockingness um and it's this dark repetitive slow building lots of insanity which you know i would say um was the experience a lot of people had while we're all sheltering in place. So the, the name uh, came after the, the tune was actually written, but it really, the tune had the vibe that I was going for. And then when it was named, that kind of inspired David further to really take it to a dark place. And um, I love it. <laughs> yeah. It's uh it, it definitely has like a, 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 anxiety anxiety feeling in that in that middle section a little bit and in like a good way not in a way where you like you don't want to listen to it but it's like yeah it really builds into it it sounds like a story song without words you know totally and and it's got this like right from the beginning it's repeating these figures that add like this ominous like something's gonna happen even though it really takes time to reveal itself i think (laughs) now have you been to uh dorigo is that how you say that I've been there three times, twice with the trio, Dorgo, and yes, that's that's right, Dorgo. Yeah, that's. Uh, there's got to be some magic there because the amount of songs <laughs> that have Dorgo in the title now. I, I well, it it is it, like if you're a bluegrasser touring Europe from North America, chances are you've played that festival, um, and it's not even a huge festival. Like it's quite a quaint festival, I'd say. Touring Australia is like my favorite place to tour internationally. I I just love the 
I, I love the culture. I love the people. I love their sense of humor. I love that I can be really sarcastic because they are, and no one's, you don't have to tell people over and over again, oh, I'm just joking. <laughs> um, so, um, and it is a, like, it's, it's always been the beginning of the tour for me. So it's a really magical. And that's actually the first time I met Ross Martin was, was at that festival um, we were sharing accommodations that Jacob Jolliffe band and the trio were in the same place. And so that was the first time I'd met. Um, I think it was the first time I met Jacob as well. Um, and anyhow, the festival is beautiful. I'll confess that the, that my writing that tune was partly inspired by all the tributes to the <laughs> festival, although I love it. And I, and I, and it's worthy of writing tunes for but i but you know uh reichman and george jackson and and david benedict all wrote these really cool tunes in honor of that festival so i thought mine was going to be it was kind of like uh tipping the hat to those guys as much as the festival itself How did you determine that to be the title track? I'm always I'm always interested in how um, a track becomes the title of an entire project. And obviously it's a trio. I understand that. But is there anything deeper than that? of layers to it for sure um so for for one thing it is the only full the only co-write that we've done so when we're rehearsing for the album mike who has he's he's an amazing uh interpreter of music and he's actually an amazing composer i think but he has a hard time committing to finishing a tune he's always like i know but i could do this or i could do this so he doesn't complete a lot of pieces but what he does is always really beautiful and he showed me this part of a tune which was actually ended up being the a part to the rule of three and he taught it to me he wrote it on the guitar but he taught it to me on mandolin and and once we were separated in that pandemic like this thing was you know like an earworm it was stuck and i just loved playing it on the mandolin eventually i asked him if he'd mind if i wrote a part for james and if James wrote a part for Mike, and then it could be like a co-write that we're all kind of writing parts for the other, for someone else to play, to be their feature melody. And it became that that piece. The, and, and then also over the course of the pandemic, I returned to a earlier passion in my life, which was photography, um, which I've had, you know, short stints of being really into it a couple times in my life. And, um, and it's the rule of thirds is a 
photo like uh photography and cinematography um composition rule as well where like the when you divide it's just of proportions that are aesthetically pleasing and the rule of threes is also a compositional like in literary in the literary world a compositional tool where they things are for whatever reason tend to be more or it's the principle that things tend to be more interesting in three so even like the three bears or the three little pigs or you know these sorts of stories um so it's this principle that is through all these compositional things and it, it and was this piece that we wrote for each other so anyhow all these things kind of came together to be like oh this would make a really good uh um descriptor of the album yeah that's that's perfect i love the uh compositional the the part where writing parts for each other that's pretty sweet yeah yeah and it was like you know i mean not a huge act of trust but you know those trust exercises where you fall back and trust (laughs) it's kind of kind of like a musical version of that What uh the, the instruments on there real quick? I know we probably talked about them before and other and others, but it's always it's always nice to hear. I mean, they sound killer, of course. Well, Mike and I both play Haydn mandolins, so uh, there are a couple Haydn mandolins, and Mike has a triple O Martin, I think, set early seventies triple O triple O eighteen, and um he uh i i can't I, I don't know where his violin's from and james plays a 60s k and i have my Haydn number 89 f number 89 that i've now had for um for 17 years which is my only mandolin and my fletcher brock uh mandola which is also like this beautiful f style mandola mandola that um is an engelman top all my instruments are all my mando family instruments are engelman and uh the mando cello which was also built by fletcher brock which is i've never got to play mike marshall's but as far as all the ones that i've played is definitely the most magical one that i've had the opportunity to play yeah, it sounds so good like there's just that growl it it does and the thing that i've always struggled with other mando cellos is you know the open c string always sounds amazing no matter what but those fretted notes on the bottom strings like to have a mando cello that really speaks everywhere um this mando cello totally does and it really is piano like to my ear like how that bottom c string all the fretted notes have power behind them without like having to smash it i mean the mandel cello is a pretty buzzy smashy sounding instrument uh, or at least this is my hands um but but the uh that this one really speaks all the way across and and yeah i love it i've also had it for like probably close to 20 years now man um that Haydn mandolins are so killer and uh boy was it forest o'connor just had his a style I think up for sale and I, I think I watched that video about 25 times in a row granted that you know he's a killer player but you can hear some magic in that yeah yeah there there's they're super consistent although I mean they are but they all 
have slightly different characters and mine was the third Haydn that I had. My first one was a Sikatop F style and early 2000s he changed a bunch of things that I think upped his his tone a bit mm-hmm. and um, I, I was really curious. Thiele had pl- been playing this Dudenbostel that had an Engelman top and, and I was really curious about about that sound and i asked him to build me he built me this beautiful a5 that was an engelman top and it immediately became my the only instrument i played and after a while he's like listen if you want i can build you an f5 do you just sell your first f5 and that'll be what you pay for this and i'll build you um an f5 that sounds like the a5 because he liked the idea of me playing an f5 and i i mean i love f5s obviously and so I was like, sure, but it sounded exactly like the A5, <laughs> literally, like exactly. So I never played the A5 anymore. And eventually I sold it and I, I'm a one mandolin guy. Um, and this is a very spectacular instrument. Like I've, it, it, the responsiveness, you can smash it like for bluegrass type stuff, but you can really play delicately and it just like the notes jump out, hammer-ons and pull-offs. They just speak so easily compared to many mandolins. It's it's a beauty. Speaking of bluegrass stuff, you also have a new project. Yeah, uh, the tone range. Yeah, how did how did this come up? Uh, well, it actually came up while driving from one gig to another gig with the trio, because um, it is virtually the trio plus a banjo player that I've played with for as long as I've been playing bluegrass, a guy named Chris Quinn, who we played in a bluegrass band for years called the Foggy Hogtown Boys. And it originally started with, like, we're just talking about, um, you know, we weren't playing straight up bluegrass much, and there aren't that many local bluegrass bands in Toronto anymore these days. Everyone moved out of town. And and, um, we're like, you know, it'd be nice to just play some straight up bluegrass. We can just play, like, local bar gigs. And if we do that, I know, like, you know, we'll get local fat. Like it, it was a gig with no aspiration of like trying to get a real business plan together, but just like be fun to play local gigs. And we know that we'll get parties and festivals and stuff just by existing. <laughs> and, um, and cause we all play, we all love bluegrass as well and want something to play totally straight ahead. So we asked Quinn if he was interested in it. And then we, we started like we're driving around one day, just Mike, James or Mike, Adam, or sorry, James, Adam and I, um, and we're making jokes about like bad bluegrass band names with tone in the pun. <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, we're throwing out just, I, I can't even think of what they, what they were now, but, you know, tone mountain and stuff that like we thought were, was kind of cheesy or whatever. And, and, and then someone said tone rangers and we laughed and they got really quiet in the car and was like, actually that's a really good name <laughs> and, and 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 all of a sudden it went from like we're not going to be a band to or like we're not even going to bother with the name or anything to okay maybe we'll be we have to start this band now because we have a name and then later on we're like oh we're never going to record an album and then we're, we're like on another drive from a gig and making jokes about bad album names with tone in the, in the name and uh someone said tone on the range we're like, oh, now we have to record an album. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. So have you booked a date yet? We actually rec- already. So you saw that video, that little intro joke yeah. 
theme song thing that we we did that was part of a a session where we went to a friend's barn and spent a day recording i think we got nine done in one day and we did video of everything so we've got um so i've got a bunch of video coming out as well and that was uh and we were really just flying like doing three four takes of stuff and then just moving on and uh I think we're going to do another session just to get a few more tunes done, but the session went great. And for just like, this was really, uh, let's just do, uh, the opposite of the type of recording I normally do, which instead of being meticulous, we're going to just do it fast and just stick a microphone in front of each instrument and just like try and make an old school sounding bluegrass album, you know, no click track, no anything, just doing everything live off the floor and doing our, our best to make it sound like us and it went really really well uh something that you know 10 years ago probably wouldn't have gone as well <laughs> i'm excited to hear it man are you gonna wear them are you gonna wear the masks at all times no no <laughs> no it, it, that was just for the theme song oh. just thought it would be funny and we we did some and we did some photography with him as well. Yeah, it's great. I mean, it's one of those things, again, where it would be, it sounds like you could be like, oh, we should wear masks. You're like, no. And then you're like, we should wear masks. <laughs> like, yeah, yes. well, when I came up with the idea to to show how dedicated to the concept I was, those were the third masks that I ordered <laughs> uh, to find the right ones that fit well and look good. So <laughs> that's great. Oh, my God. I, I, do, th I do think that masks will... Uh, We'll definitely make good merch, though. Oh, totally. <laughs> yeah. Well, are you guys are you free? Are you going to be doing any uh, U.S. dates for the uh, the trio album? That that is just starting to get booked again. Uh, so starting like in late 2024, we've got nothing that that is being officially announced yet. But we've got. Uh, a handful of actually we've got three shows that are like officially announced uh in out in washington state that a tour will build around in november early november next year and then a bunch of stuff all over the east coast that's that's all being put together so in check back with us in a month and a half and we'll have a bunch of tours on the website for um for the u.s because you know before the pandemic hit that was actually where we were touring more than in Canada at the time. Yeah, I think, I, boy, I swear, this could have been right around when COVID hit, but weren't you going to be in Florida? And then did COVID come along and cancel dates? Was that? Yeah, that that's exactly what happened. We were on the road in Canada. Half of the tour was in Saskatchewan or in Manitoba. And then the second half was going to be in Florida, which I probably made the joke at the time, a hard tour to pack for, clothing-wise. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because I was going to try to go to one of the Florida shows because it was relatively uh, a relatively close drive from Charleston. You know, like I think it was like yeah, only four there hours. Actually, there, there's actually a couple of those may even be happening in as early as June. Oh, wow, man, let me know for sure. I would love to uh, to uh, meet you in person, catch you live. Yeah, yeah, that, that'd be great. We'd love that. So, uh, well, cool, man. Well, we kind of talked beer already, but um, I would love to uh, for the uh, the question where I ask if you only had ten minutes a day, what would you work on? And you mentioned earlier some concepts that you learned when you went to jazz school. And I was wondering if maybe you could just share one of those concepts with the listeners to maybe help stir some motivation. Sure, I, I would. You know, before I went to jazz school, 
practicing improvisation seemed like an oxymoron. I did not know how to do it. And um, the one of the techniques that they gave us early on in jazz school for like being able to follow chord changes as they're happening is, you know, you can practice playing chords, chords in a sequence, right? And you practice that and the sequence occurs and your mind eventually can do it without thinking. Well, this was a, a really helpful technique that I wouldn't want to improvise like this, but it was a good tool for helping me follow the chord changes of the moment. And if you take a song that has um, a lot of chord changes, like let's say Blackberry Blossom, that there's a chord change every half bar of the A part. And so if you take that and you're just following a, a melodic pattern that is like, from derived from a scale, for instance, or it could be a musical lick or whatever you're trying to internalize, but let's just take like a scale pattern. So if you're playing a major scale, like G major, which is, you know, G, A, B, C, D, E, F sharp, G. Um, if you, you know, numbered those scale degrees and it was one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one, and took like a pattern of four, four notes that are gonna be eighth notes, which are a half a bar in length, and play one, two, three, five of each of the chords of the moment. So in Blackberry Blossom, it goes uh, G, D, C, G, C, G, A, D, right? That's the first half of the A part. And if you just practice playing one, two, three, five, and you can practice this by putting your index finger on the as the root, so you're moving your hand with the chords of the moment, and as one way to approach this, and you go one, two, three, five over G, so G, A, B, D. And then when the five chord comes, you have to move your hand to where your index finger is on the root of the five chord and play one, two, three, five of that. So D is the, you know, quote unquote key of the moment. And one, two, three, five of D would be D, E, F sharp, A. And then when you get to the next bar, it's the first half is C. So you move your index finger to the C note and you're practicing wiring. You're playing this musical concept and moving it with the chord changes. And it is a type of improvisation, though, you know, it becomes very predictable and, and not something that I would necessarily use in as like a musical idea throughout a whole solo. But when you're wiring this movement, you're eventually not even thinking about the notes you're playing and just moving your hand but at the same time being aware whether it's on the conscious or unconscious of the chord changes of the moment and it frees you up to be able to start varying from that but keeping your hand or head uh, moving over the chord changes now another way i would do that exact exercise is trying to find those exact notes without moving your hand over the chord changes so you're still playing the same one two three five of each chord but you know for the d chord um you know that might be the same because you're if you're moving up to d you're just shifting up a string which is okay um but when you get to the c chord instead of shifting your hand so the c is under your index finger um if you're in your G major position, it's under your pinky. So it forces you to see those patterns moving under your hand without your hand moving. 
and again, by practicing and repeating things that are planned out, they eventually seep into your unconscious and become part of your instincts that you can draw from without thinking, just like you don't think about what you have to do to walk. You, it's all in your unconscious, although you're doing very many intricate things all at the same time. And it's just like that. Yeah. At one, at one two, three, five, that's, I think that's a Coltrane concept too, that, uh, that he used, Could be. I think, I think I've definitely heard the one, two, three, five. That's a, that's a great one though. Or you, or you could take any, any musical idea. Like that's, if it's something that is a bar, like something that's a half bar length for that particular tune, or if it's a tune that has slower moving chord changes where there's a full bar or even two bars, then you can take longer phrases or even take a phrase like, let's say, you know, a G run or some cool turnaround that you learn from a Thiele tune or whatever. And you look at how the notes lie over the key that it is at the moment. And then you just write out all the keys that you could possibly play in and then just figure out how you have to, where you have to put your hand to be able to play those notes relative to every key of the moment. And as you go through that practice, it just, again, it's informing your unconscious so that you've got this knowledge of where, you know, that phrase fits over B flat and it teaches you that phrase, but it's not stuck in one particular key, but you're also programming your mind to see how things move under your hands. That's perfect, man. Oh, Andrew, Great. once again, yeah, always, just always a pleasure to talk to you. Always inspiring. You release such beautiful music. I, I, I love it. This new album is, is killer. Well, thank, thank you. You, you are inspiring many, many, including myself in so many ways and like musically as well. So I'm oh, man. glad to see how much you're doing. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I'm excited. That's uh, it's hopefully 2024 will be a, just a productive year for everybody out there in the mandolin world. That's fingers crossed for everyone. Exactly. Well, thank you again so much for taking the time to do this, buddy. I appreciate it. Likewise. Thank you. All right, there you have it. Thank you so much to Andrew Collins for checking in once again. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to go out and buy the Andrew Collins Trio's new album, The Rule of Three, available everywhere now. And I'm going to post up that video of the example that Andrew talked about on my Patreon. Hope everybody has themselves a fantastic weekend. Cheers, everybody.